0: Welcome everyone, wonderful to have you here tonight, and uh, great to have Shane with us. He spoke with the staff this morning, and uh, if I only got that, I'd have been happy. If that was the only message we got, man, I'd have just been blessed. And uh, yet here we are, we've got tonight and tomorrow night, and then uh, Saturday at 6 o'clock got a men's function, so come along to the men's uh, meal, and if you have a, a big boy's toys, which could anything from a uh, you know electric toothbrush right through to a... Uh, a, uh, a Harley Davidson. Bring it along. Show us what you got. <laughs> anyway, we're just going to have some fun. We've got a meal on Saturday night, six o'clock here, and uh, just a time together. So we want to pray, just open our hearts to the Lord, and, and, uh, and then chains on. We've got two sessions with a brief break in between, and uh, we just want to get straight into it. So let's just open our hearts. Just, let's pray in tongues for a moment, lift our hands to the Lord, and then just wake, make Jesus welcome. Lord, we honor you tonight. We just honor you tonight, Lord. Lord, we open our hearts to you. We lift up your name. What a great God. What a mighty God. What a wonderful, wonderful person you are. We love you, Lord. we lift up our hands and our hearts to you tonight, opening ourselves to receive your word tonight. Lord, minister to us tonight. We worship you and exalt you. We lift high your name tonight, Lord. We bless you and praise you. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for bringing Shane here. Lord, we just ask you, Lord, just continue to speak to him and through him into our hearts. Let the word he speaks, let it be, uh, be grace with your touch that speaks into our hearts and lives and spires and challenges in how we think and how we speak and how we live. We honor you tonight. Thank you for Shane. We pray your blessing upon him and this whole weekend of meetings together. We thank you for one another, Lord, for the gifts and graces in our lives, for all we carry and contribute to expand the kingdom of God in this area. And, Lord, we just welcome you tonight. Jesus, we give you all the honor and all the glory. Amen. Amen. Well, let's give Shane a fantastic welcome here tonight. You are going to enjoy him, I know. He shares things that I have never heard a preacher share before. (laughs) He is so open, we're going to just enjoy him. So let's please be seated. And uh, Shane comes to us from America via Australia, a place of great things. And uh, Shane is a gifted teacher trained uh, and has uh, learned under an um, anointed rabbi uh, and so he carries a depth he was sharing with us at lunchtime just uh, about the uh the whole feast of passover and its uh, relevance to eastern oh man we were just all enthralled the, the bible is rich in depth and uh, he can bring an aspect to it we haven't heard before cool. so very cool. god bless you
1: thank very you man all right we 're going to have fun um, just i 'd like to thank you guys for for being here. Let me just say this um, as he said i 've had the privilege of being mentored by a, a pastor with his rabbi training for the last eight years and so we 've uh, compiled a lot of that stuff on that table back there so um, in between the, the meetings and, and at the at, at the end, you can stop by there um, we 've got five brand new pieces of of material back there on the, one on the tabernacle, um, one on um, On the Jewish roots of Easter, and then we have a a compilation of things: one called "Great Big God," and then one on the Beatitudes. So you can check that out. We also um, have our our "How to Read the Bible Like a Hebrew" seminar now is available in DVD. So if you if you're the type of person that likes to see me on the whiteboard and stuff, you can order that back there as well. We'll ship it up to you. So um, you can check all that out. Obviously, there's profit built into that, and um, what we use the profit for is to help us fulfill what we believe is our mission to the poor. So. Um, it helps us go to places that can't afford it and helps us feed people, and we partner with um, three different things in South Africa to help us help us fulfill what we feel like God has called us to do there. So you can be a part of that and simply um, put something in your hands that'll help you listen to this over and over and over again. Science tells us that um, no matter how good I speak tonight, by Tuesday you'll only remember four percent of it. So um, unless I put some graphic image around it that will help you remember, which, is, which we'll do that too. So, uh, um, and then still, it's still a, a lost cause. So a um, so couple rules, couple ground rules for the night, okay? Um, number one, we have to have fun. Number two, we have to admit that if we're going to get the most out of this, we have to admit that we're wrong about God. If, 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 you define, if you define right as without error, wouldn't you agree with me that all of us are all wrong? That, that actually God is too big to get our head around? And, and in order to journey with the Bible, we're going we're to open up the Bible and listen. If we don't get this, here's what we run the risk to do, and I don't want to participate in this. I do not want to participate in giving you a bunch of things that maybe you've heard before, maybe you haven't. I don't want to to empower you to walk out of here and wow your Christian friends with something you just learned. I don't want to do that. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you principles from God's Word that makes Him even bigger than ever before. And not just that, I want not just to make Him bigger than ever before to you. I want it to change our lives to where we more and more and more will partner with the leadership team at this church to build the kingdom of God right here. That's what we're looking to do. That's what we're looking to do. I want us to change our life. See, see, Christianity lost a lot of its credibility in the Middle Ages because there was a shift in Christianity. And that shift in Christianity made it all about going to heaven one day. All about going to heaven one day. It all became about, hey, come to an altar, pray a prayer that we made up, and when you do that, when you do that, you're born again. And you'll get to go to heaven one day. Now, is there truth in that? Sure, there's truth in that. Should that truth be celebrated? Sure. Is it the main thing? No. It's the start of the main thing. See, God, God wasn't just looking to get a group of people into heaven. God was looking for a radical new culture that is going to show the whole world what life would be like if he was in charge of it today. It's about bringing a kingdom to earth, not waiting to go to heaven one day. And so we're going to explore a lot of these thoughts. We're going to explore a lot of these thoughts. See, if we're, not, if we're not careful, we teach the cross as primarily a mode of forgiveness. Is it a mode of forgiveness? Of course. Behold, the Lamb of God, He takes away the sins of the world. Of course it was. Is it just a mode of forgiveness? no. Uh, In the first century, if you ask people, why did Jesus die on the cross, this is what their answer would have been. Jesus died on the cross to defeat the devil, the enemy of our soul, and his entire way of living. That that the cross was an in-your-face confrontation to a way of life. It wasn't just a method by which we put our faith in something so we can suffer and then one day die and go to heaven. It wasn't that at all. The cross was an in-your-face confrontation to an entire new way of living. It was the, it was the defeat of one way of living in favor of another. Um, the, the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus' death on the cross the culmination of the ages. Does that sound like somebody died and you put your faith in him and say a prayer and then you suffer and then you'll die and it'll all get better? The culmination of the ages... That sounds like a rock concert, doesn't it? Where'd you go last weekend? I went to the culmination of the ages. <laughs> it was awesome. You should have been there, man. It was the culmination of the ages. <laughs> see see, we, we aren't just meant to wear the cross around our neck. We're not just meant to put the fish on our car. We're not just meant to wear the armbands. Uh, you know what? It's Thursday night. You're giving a Thursday night to come to church and seek the face of God. I'm assuming you're saved. If you're not, why are you here? Like, like if if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in church. Do you realize you're in church on Thursday night? I'm gonna try and look on weeknights. I will always honor your time. I find no pleasure in long meetings. Can I get a amen? Like, let's, let's do what we got to do, let's, let's get what God's going to get us, and, and then let's go change our lives, hey? Let's make some decisions, right? Because NCIS is on tonight, and I hear Gibbs is firing somebody. It's life-changing stuff, right? It's like life-changing, right? So I find no pleasure in going so long with a meeting that you've missed the point. So we're, we're, gonna, we're going to journey together. I have no doubt in my mind that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. My question isn't, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? That's not my purpose tonight. My purpose is this. Now what? So you've been recreated in righteousness and true holiness. Okay. Now what? So so you're learning your identity in Christ. Great. Now what? I'm not so interested in are you going to heaven one day. I'm interested in are you saved when your husband leaves his underwear on the floor. (laughs) I'm interested in what that does to your life. I'm not interested. I'm really not interested if you're saved in here. It's easy to be saved in here. That's easy. It's easy to lift your hands in here. It's easy to pray in tongues in here. It's easy to, to do whatever you do in here. It's, it's easy to be in alignment with God in here. What I'm more interested in is, is when you go out there, are, are you saved when someone cuts you off on the road? Are you saved then? Are you saved when you stop by the grocery store on your way home from work? and you've had a stressful day, and you end up in the line with the slowest cashier in the store, are you saved then? Are you saved when you stop by the retail store and everybody who works there knows nothing about what you want? Are you saved then? Are you saved, um, sir, when your wife falls asleep a little bit too early? (laughs) May as well be real. You saved then? Are you, are, you, are you saved? Like, do you realize it's easy to be saved? <laughs> it's easy to be saved. If all saved is, is, hey, say a prayer one time and you get to go to heaven one day, that's easy. But is that all the salvation Jesus was talking about? No. No. So over the next couple nights, Thursday night, Friday night, and then I'm not, listen, every preacher has to do this sometime. Every preacher at times preaches because he has to. There's a meeting on and you got to preach, right? But sometimes there's those of us who, when we're preaching, we're not preaching because we have to. We're we're preaching because we actually have something to say. And And over the next few nights, I actually have something to say. As a matter of fact, I have so much to say, we won't get to it. I do. I do. But And my point for the next few nights is not to give you information. My point is to give you information that's going to move you as a group of people into something fuller that God has for this church. For you individually first, and then for the church. And it started today in our leadership meeting. So I feel very confident after today because I did not speak to Pastor Mike. I did not speak to anybody. And, and I, I had prepared that talk over a week ago for the staff meeting that day. And t- today, and w- the feedback I got from the staff is, is that's exactly what we needed to hear. So I feel like I'm in alignment with what the Spirit of God has to say for us. And so, and so before we get into it, we, we have to discuss humility. Humility. I talked a little bit about this last year, but it was a year ago. You won't remember it. But, <laughs> but we can't talk about these things without talking about humility. And here, here's what I mean by that. Every one of us, to get the most out of God, we have to walk with an awareness that we're wrong about Him that there's constantly something new he could teach us that that you've never cornered the market on truth you're saying shane are you saying there's not absolute truth no there absolutely is absolute truth but you absolutely don't know it are you saying that you've arrived at it you, let me show you what i mean by this if if this circle represented everything if this circle represented everything that could be known about god Everything that could ever be known about God is represented in that circle. And I handed you this marker and I said, I want you to come up and I want you to color in the part of of God that you understand. If this, if this represents everything that can possibly known about God, how much of it do you know? What would it be? A dot. (laughs) Like, like here's, here's mine. Right? And, And would yours be much bigger? All right so yours and yours would overlap with mine a little bit right So so if we went through the whole room and I handed you a pen anybody in here want to be so proud to say they'd color in a big portion of it I mean truly like 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 so if I I handed it out and, and a lot of our dots would overlap so at the end of the night we might have that And and then for for the one self-appointed prophet of God in the room who thinks they have all the truth and everything that comes off the pulpit that doesn't agree with them, well, that person's an error. We'll give you that just for the sake of argument. We'll give you a line. But at the end of the night, there's still a lot of white matter, isn't there? And in the white matter, it's only safe to put that there. That, that, that we are constantly in a journey with God. Let, let me prove to you what I mean. How many of us good-hearted people who are journeying towards the heart of God, how many of you have a greater understanding of who God is today than 10 years ago? Absolutely. So your circle, your, your, your stuff, your, it grows. What if 10 years ago, how horrible would it have been for your life if 10 years ago you would have decided, I have learned everything I need to learn about God and anything that doesn't agree with what I know now cannot be true? How horrible would that have been? If you're a computer and you shut your system off to any outside input the computer becomes irrelevant It becomes irrelevant you realize that this is true all the way through the bible that the for the bible to even have been formed like it is it required men of god to be humble with what they thought they knew do you realize that the revelation of god progressively got more gracious like before leviticus was written how did you please god How how could you please God before Leviticus was written? How did they do it? They guessed. They didn't know. They guessed. Here's what they knew. That God's required sacrifices and God's required self-mutilation. If you want an incredible read on this, you could read A History of God by Karen Armstrong. A History of God by Karen Armstrong. An Orthodox rabbi gave it to me to read on a plane so I would quit talking to him. Because he wanted to sleep. A History of God, and I devoured it. A History of God by Karen Armstrong. And what it is, it's a historical treatise of, of what gods, what they believed about gods and things like this. And here's what they all believed about gods. Gods were far away, and they lived where? Up in the sky, somewhere up. So, so if you're going to please a god or a goddess who lives somewhere in the sky, how do you do that? Two things. You offer sacrifices. How much sacrifices? You didn't know. You had to guess. So what you would do is you would offer sacrifice. If it worked, you thought, well, I got that one right. If it didn't work, then you had to do what? Offer more. It obviously wasn't enough. So you were constantly escalating your sacrifices to the point where there was a lot of cultures who escalated their sacrifices to the point where they were sacrificing their children. So what would you do? You would kill the sacrifice. Where would you kill the sacrifice? You would take it to the highest place you could find. They were called the high places. Why? Where did God live? Up. So you wanted to get as close to God as you possibly could. And you did that by going up. When you killed the sacrifice, what did you do with it? You burned it. Why? Because when you burn something, where does the smoke go? Up. So they did this over and over, and, and the escalation was unbelievable. The stuff they did to please the gods and the goddesses. They wanted sacrifices and self-mutilation. You see this, the prophets of Baal, what did they do to get God's attention? Cut their arms. They cut their arms. So the gods would require some sort of, uh, you see this in, in, the, in the radical Catholic church um, a long time ago, that some of the monks, they would do what? They would flog themselves. That was no different than the ancient gods and goddesses sacrifice and self-mutilation. Like there's this one story. There was this goddess named Kibbala. And goddess named Kibala, she morphed later into a goddess named Diana who later morphed into a goddess named Artemis. And, and their headquarters was in Ephesus, but the following was all over the place. And so there's this story in history about the goddess Kibla. Kibla, Diana, um, Artemis, they were all the same goddess. They were very sexual in nature. Um, she had like six set of breasts and just very just very provocative and sexual. What The teachings of the goddess Kibla was you can find the most enlightenment by how many different ways you can express your sexuality. And so the temples to the goddess Artemis and Diana and Kibla had temple prostitutes that you would buy and take them in and you would explore your sexuality in order to worship the goddess Kibla. Now, originally, Kibla was the goddess who was in charge of of, um, hunting. So she was in charge of making sure that men, when they went out to hunt, could find food. She was also in charge of the protection of small animals, which was a bit of a conflict of interest. So... So what they did was, there was this recorded famine. There was a three and a half year famine in an island called Sardis. Three and a half year famine. Well, what they did is they called a meeting and all the men of Sardis got together. And they said, obviously we have done something to offend the goddess Kibbalah. There was 5,000 men there. So they asked, what should 5,000 men do to show Kibbalah that we are submitted to her and are willing to do her will? What do, so, what do 5,000 men do towards a woman to show that they are committed to her? And what they did is 5,000 of them self castrated. So, they took knives and they castrated themselves and they threw them on the altar and they burned them up as an offering. To So 5,000 men went through this procedure that day so that Kibla would be pleased with them. Actually, if you go visit Sardis today, that altar is a tourist attraction. So if you're ever walking through a tourist walk in Sardis and you see an altar, don't sit on it. (laughs) So what they did to please the gods and the goddesses got worse and worse and worse finally, finally, God appears to a man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, my name is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. Now, you got to think about this in context. The Bible does not take place outside the space-time continuum of human history. It takes place within a story. So, there's a guy named Abraham. Who did he worship? Lots of idols. You know he worshipped the sun during the day and the moon at night. Well, if you worship, thank you. So, If if you worship the sun during the day and the moon at night, and you have all these other idols, what question are you left with? Who's in charge? Who's the God in charge? Isn't it awesome? How does God reveal himself to Abraham? Abraham says, what's your name? You're the only God talking. What's your name? And he says, my name is El Shaddai. You know how that translates? I'm God Almighty. In other words, I know deep inside your heart you're wondering who's actually in charge. I'm the one in charge. That's me. You you see this in the New Testament as well. Paul shows up at a place called Mars Hill. And it says, I see outside that you have a statue to a god. And it says under it, to an unknown god. He said, I'm here to declare to you who who this is. In other words, God didn't show up to Abraham and go, I am the one true almighty god. Let me just show you. Let me show you from scripture who I am. No, no, no. He says, hang on. You got a bunch of gods. You're asking a question. Who's in charge? I'm just here to tell you I'm the one in charge. Abraham says, great, well, at least you're talking. Tell me, what do you want from me? Now, think about it. Think about our discussion. What two things did the gods want from their people? Sacrifice and self-mutilation. So, so what, what did God tell Abraham to do? He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to circumcise yourself. Self-mutilation. Which would have been an interesting conversation, wouldn't it? Abraham's like, well, the other gods want us to cut our arm. You want me to do what with what? Like, what? He says, right, so, so God's first command to a 90-year-old man was to circumcise himself with a rock. So God's first command to a 90-year-old man was, rock, swing hard, don't miss. <laughs> Imagine the shaky year, 90-year-old man. Oh, God, oh, God. He definitely wouldn't want to miss. <laughs> so he says, I want you to self-mutilate. What's the other thing he asked of Abraham to do? Sacrifice his son. Now, do you notice that there's nothing interesting about that at all to Abraham? That is totally normal, except for the part of the body. He says, wait a minute, so you want me to self-mutilate and you want me to sacrifice my son? Yes, yes, that's no different than the other gods and goddesses. You notice Abraham in that story, he doesn't have to ask how. It says, so Abraham took Isaac to a high place. Abraham took Isaac to a high place. How did he know to do that? Well, he needed to do that because that's what the other gods and goddesses asked for. So he takes Isaac up to this high place, and he goes to kill him. And you guys know the story. What happens? God stops him and actually provides the sacrifice. Do you know that in the history of God, that is the first time in the history of the world that a God was recorded to stop a sacrifice and in order to provide one? So there was something different about this God. This God wasn't a taker. This God was a giver. The Talmud tells the other part of the story. The Talmud says that when Abraham, when this happened to Abraham, that Abraham was so moved with the compassion of God that he immediately went home and he took an ax and a stick and he destroyed destroyed all the idols in his house except one. And he left the biggest one standing and he put the ax in its hand like so. So the next morning, Abraham's father comes in and says, Abraham, what happened here? And Abraham says, isn't it obvious? Um, There was a fight amongst the gods. And that one obviously won. And his father said, that's impossible because I made them with my own hands. To which Abraham said, then why do you worship them? Why do you worship them? Let Let me ask you a question. How long was it? between God talking to Abraham the first time, and Abraham destroying the idols? How long was it? 20? 25 years? A long time. So God journeyed with Abraham for 25 years, and it took 25 years of Abraham journeying with God for Abraham to get the guts to destroy his idols. And God was patient enough to allow it. Why? Because God's not insecure. God's infinitely more secure than the average Christian. He's not threatened with other people's journey. Do you realize how humble Abraham had to be to journey with God? Can you imagine if Abraham would have said, Nope, this is what I know to be true about God, and gods are takers, not givers. I'm killing my son anyway. Hmm. You realize, you realize that these people journeyed until the book of Leviticus was written. In Leviticus, Leviticus, do you understand this? That Leviticus, which is the book we call the law, it's like the harshest book in the whole Bible. It says that the Leviticus was the most gracious book ever written up to that time. The most gracious book ever written. So the book we think is the law was the most gracious book ever written about God ever. Up to that time. Why? Because it was the first time in the history of God that a God said, this is exactly what you have to do to be close to me. Up to that time, they were guessing. So they were offering more and more and more and more and more and more. In Leviticus, it says, for the forgiveness of sins, once a year on Yom Kippur, each family must bring a spotless lamb. So in Leviticus it says, to have your sins forgiven, this is what it takes. One sacrifice per family per year. One sacrifice per family per year. Do you understand that there would have been people there going, there's no way God's that nice. There's no way God is that kind. There's no way God wants us to be with him so bad that he's willing to make it that easy. There's no way it can possibly be that simple. One sacrifice per family per year? Unbelievable. It's not that easy. So here's what they did. This group of people created an oral tradition. There were 613 commands in Leviticus. These people made an oral tradition that added 3,000 commands to the 613 given by God. Why? Because they needed God to be harder than that. Jesus comes along and begins to wreck everybody. Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, we're not going to do that. Here's what we're going to do. One sacrifice per family per year, that's too hard. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do one sacrifice for, for the whole world for all time. And people couldn't handle it. No, no, that's impossible. That doesn't match what we know about God. So they killed him, which is actually what provided the sacrifice. Because Jesus showed up and he wrecked their ideas of unclean and clean. He wrecked their ideas of who was in and who was out. As a matter of fact, Jesus said to one, one group of people, he said, at my banqueting table, many will come to me from the north, east, south, and west. But you who actually think you're in will be the one shut out. So Jesus seems to indicate that at the end of the age, the dangerous place to be is the one who thinks they're in. Whoa. He comes in and he wrecks their ideas of clean and unclean. He, he comes up to prostitutes and go, oh, your heart's okay, you're clean. They're going, what? You can't call a prostitute clean. Oh, yeah, I can see her heart. She's okay. She's okay. Her faith has forgiven all her sins. It's all right. It's all right. They're they're going crazy. Like, there's this one time, there's this this, uh, tax collector in a tree, and there's 5,000 people behind Jesus, and the one thing the 5,000 people have in common is they hate the guy in the tree. And he walks up to the guy in the tree and he says, hey man, you come down. I'm coming to your house today. And it says that Zacchaeus was so moved with the compassion of Jesus that this is what he said. Hey, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus said, that's it. Salvation's come to him. Can you imagine their response? No, you can't say salvation's come to him. You, what do you have to have to be saved? You have to have an animal. You have to go to the temple. You have to talk to the priest about offering this for you. This is what you have to have to be saved. Jesus is like, no, his heart changed. He gave half what it had to the poor. His heart had to change. His salvation's come to him. They're like, no, you can't say salvation's come to him. He didn't get saved our way. We would never do that, would we? He, 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 he didn't get, you have to pray our prayer at our altar. And if you don't pray our prayer our way at our altar, then we're in and you're out. Jesus was dealing with the same things. Like there's this one time, you, you want something to change your life? Go look through every salvation experience in the New Testament. It's unbelievable the humility these people had to have. How did Paul get saved? Like Paul, the great Paul, light appeared, knocked him off his donkey. And what did he do? He looks up and says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, finally, you are. So Paul simply asked a question. Zacchaeus gave half what he had to the poor. There there was a lady caught in the act of adultery. They bring her out. They say, Jesus, the Torah says stoner. What do you say? He says, okay, the Torah says stoner, I say stoner, but I also say you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. So everybody gets tired of holding their rocks, they put them down, they walk away. He waits till they all walk away, and he says, hey, lady, where are your accusers? She says, "Uh, they're not here. He said, then I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Why? Because the Torah said you, to catch, you the Torah said you had to stone someone caught in the act of adultery, but the Torah also said that you have to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declared a mistrial. He's quite brilliant, really. So she, asked, she answers a question. Paul asks a question. Zacchaeus gives half of what he has to the poor. The centurion says, surely he was the son of God. There's another guy saying, be merciful to me, a sinner, oh God. There's one prostitute who washes his feet with her hair. He says, oh, um, your faith has forgiven all your sins. There's this one time, listen, I was raised Pentecostal. I was discipled Baptist. I went to a Presbyterian Reformed Seminary, and I've been mentored by a Pentecostal rabbi for eight years. I've covered the gamut, but... This story nothing in the whole theology I've ever seen fits it. It says that Jesus was preaching and it says that a paralyzed guy got lowered in from the roof of the house and this is what it says. And Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. So can you get saved by having the right friends now? They're going you and that's what, exactly that exactly that the crowd there went, you can't call him saved? You can't call him forgiven? You can't do that. Not based on someone else's faith. He says, so that you'll know that I have the authority to do what I want. Get up and walk. <laughs> Jesus is brilliant. <laughs> see, see, we get all caught. Can you imagine if the writers of the Bible went, that doesn't fit our method of salvation, so therefore it can't be true, so we'll hold it out from the whole world. Now, See, it just doesn't work. We have to be humble. We have to be humble. See, you got to understand that European Christianity is filled with largely white men who think they're smart enough to take a European English concept and place it over a Jewish theological truth and then try to call it true. And these men, as big as God is, they write books called Systematic Theology. Which means this, we have figured out a system that God always works in. (laughs) Really? you figured out God? Isn't that something? You're a real trooper. (laughs) God is not able to be figured out. He's too big. His word is too multifaceted for us to get our whole head around it. No way. And you know what? Aren't you glad about that? Like, seriously, if we were serving a God that we could get our measly head around, wouldn't you be worried you were serving the wrong one? Like, here's, here's, here's some good examples. You guys came for some revelation. Here's a revelation. The Torah says, don't touch your own poop. <laughs> Pretty good plan, right? Why? Because if you're going to be the light of the world, a city set up on a hill, you can't be known as a group of people fiddling with your poop, <laughs> right? Pretty unhealthy. Don't touch your own poop. Good idea. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, I want you to cook food and use poop as fuel. People there would have said, God would never say that. But he did once. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, I want you to lay naked on your front lawn. Seventy days on one side. Seventy days on the other. To get your tan even." God would never say that but he did the Torah says don't marry Gentiles and stone all prostitutes and the word of the Lord came to Hosea saying marry that Gentile prostitute the Torah says don't eat bacon in Acts Peter shows up at the first assembly of God in Jerusalem with a barrel of pork rinds and they say Peter you can't do that why? why? Because the Torah strictly forbids it. He said, but Jesus told me I could eat whatever I wanted. They said, did Jesus tell you you could eat whatever you wanted when he was walking this earth? He said, no. He said, I had a dream last night, and Jesus appeared to me in a dream and said I could eat pork now. And we make a doctrine out of that. Do you realize that with current European Christianity thinking, he would have been cast out as a heretic? See, see, let me me give you an illustration of, of what I'm talking about here that really helped me. For the for the church, for the church to regain a lot of its credibility, we have to lose our addiction to being right. We're, we're addicted to being right. And when you're addicted to being right about something or someone that's as unbeing right about as God, you are setting yourself up for a disaster. Let, let me tell you what I mean. Let's say we're gods, for the sake of example. And let's say I'm a chairman of the council of the gods. Let me say to you, I am bored with you. So I make a movement that we create people. Let us create people. And let us use this board to create people with. So we create people on the board. He has a giant head, this guy. Let us call them Joe and Jane. For the sake of relevance and time, let's say we make them in our image and our likeness. Let's say we give them a similar mental capacity as we do. At the end of the day, here's the problem with Joe and Jane. Joe and Jane cannot possibly fathom our world because they're stuck in two dimensions. Everything about their world is two-dimensional. So let's say, I said, let us write a book We will call this book the Bible because we want Joe and Jane to know about us gods. Let us tell them about our world. Do you realize that even the simplest things in our world blow their mind? For instance, what if I said, Joe, you wouldn't believe my world. In my world, I can extend my arm out. Joe says, no way. Unbelievable. Jane, God says in his world he can stick his arm out. That is unfathomable. What if I said, Joe, in my world, I can be in front of you and behind you all at the same time. Joe goes. Begins to blow his mind. Do you realize these are the simplest things in our world? What if I had somebody who understood, say, physics? What if I had somebody who understood physics explain nuclear trajectories to Joe and Jane? It would, their head would come off. <laughs> everything, it would, my head would come off. Everything about I, everything I do, anything I do to them. If I stick my hand through their world, what would they see? They would see my hand in two dimensions. Which, what does that look like? Five circles coming at roughly different times followed by a series of dashes. Five dots followed by a series of dashes. Joe says to Jane, did you see that? That was five dots followed by a series of dashes. Then it disappeared. Jane says, you know what? I think it was bigger than that. I think it was the hand of shame. (laughs) Joe says, are you smoking crack? (laughs) That was just five dots followed by a series of dashes. Who's right and who's wrong? Both. Both. It's just their perception of God in two dimensions. And if I'm a loving, caring God, I'm not thinking they can ever understand me. What I'm wanting them to do is engage me. The rabbi said if we talked for two hours tonight about God, if most everything we said was wrong, God would still be pleased because we spent a night talking about him instead of something else. It's the heart of God. Because see, every dimension, mathematicians call it a degree of freedom. Let me show you what I mean by that. Give me some artistic Uh, margin here. Um, If this is a puzzle space and this is the piece that's supposed to go in that puzzle space, if all you have is two dimensions, can you ever twist this around enough to get it in there? No. What do you have to have to do that? You have to have a third dimension. You have to be able to pick it up and put it over the top and drop it down. That's called a degree of freedom. Every dimension you live in adds infinite amounts of degrees of freedom. That, that's why, if, if I tried to explain this to them, what is, what is this in two dimensions? What is that? I'm not tricking you. It, it, yeah, it's a circle. Yep, circle. What, what is this in two dimensions? It's a rectangle. What if I wrote to Joe and said, listen, in my world, the same object can be a circle and a rectangle all at the same time joe goes unbelievable how's that possible a circle and a rectangle at the same time of course it's very easy all you need is an axis to turn something on a salt shaker anything changes shape if you can turn it that's a circle that's a rectangle any way you look at it you just need something to turn it on Now listen, these are the complications that exist when a three-dimensional person tries to communicate with a two-dimensional one. How many more complications exist? How many dimensions does God live in? A A lot. I mean, he could be everywhere all the time and in no wits diminished. How many space dimensions do you need to do that? A lot. How many time dimensions does God live in? At least three. And maybe 300 more we haven't thought of. We live in one time dimension. Listen, how many complications exist when an infinitely dimensional God tries to communicate with three dimensional people? Huge, huge. And in order to journey with that God, what does it take? Large doses of humility. Large doses of humility. Now, I'm using this to introduce our whole weekend together. That everything we're going to talk about this weekend requires, at the end of the day, humility. That the first century writers, the first century um, rabbis, they called it this the disposition of Messiah. It's from Exodus 34 6. It was the basis of all prayer in Hebrew thought. God consciousness around his character. He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness. He is the Lord, the Lord. He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness. That we must be filled with humility That when we're dealing with other people, that we need to have an attitude, a disposition, a countenance that is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness. That if we're going to be kingdom people, we have to know inside of our heart that our journey with God is just that. It's a journey. That we never arrive at it until we get to glory. That at the end of the day, we're just Joe and Jane. We're just Joe and Jane. Now, if you'll agree with me that for the rest of this journey... That that, that will be Joe and Jane. I want everybody to do this. We're just Joe and Jane. We're just Joe and Jane. We're just three-dimensional people trying to make sense of an infinitely dimensional God. And that leads us to the heart of our God. One of the interesting things that I learned, anytime you're looking at a piece of literature... You have to look at a couple things, any piece of literature, and the Bible is no exception. First, and in no order of importance, you have to look at the historical truths that were true of that day. If you know about when something was written, you can go back and read the history around that day to sort of figure out what was going on. It's very important to understand what they're talking about. So the first one is historical truths. The the second thing you need to look at is euphemisms or idiomatic expressions Euphemisms and idiomatic expressions, okay? An idiom is any figure of speech that is particular to a certain culture, all right? So New Zealand would have their idioms. I know Australia does. Australia has fair dinkum, all right? No one else in the world uses that language that I know of. Fair dinkum. A euphemism is any time you use is a figure of speech that is used to say something softer, Let me give you an example. Someone died. Someone passed away. That's a euphemism. That's a euphemism. In Australia, they have a horrible euphemism for death. They say, carked it. (laughs) Oh, that guy carked it. What is that? Like, would you rather die or cark it? (laughs) Figures of speech are very important. They're very important, and they're very important to interpreting letters and, and books and things like this. For instance, let me give you an example of how important a figure speech is. If, 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 let's say I gave Allie a gift here. Let's say, let's say that, that I, get, I find this gift that I know she'll like, and I write her a letter, and, and, I, and I put it with the gift, and, and at the end of the letter, I say something like this, Allie, I really hope you like this. It cost me an arm and a leg, Okay. And so let's say Allie is a pack rat, and she goes and she, she puts that in some drawer somewhere. And, and 2,000 years from now, some archaeologist is excavating where she used to live. And under about eight levels of earth, they find this desk. And they find this desk, and inside this desk, they find this preserved note. And they find this note, and it says, Allie, I hope you love this. It cost me an arm and a leg. Can you imagine the guy going, How romantic is this guy? <laughs> He was willing to have his arm and his leg chopped off <laughs> in order to, to give her something, right? And of course, we know, we know it's a figure of speech for, it costs a lot, right? Like it's expensive. It's really, really expensive. So figures of speech and euphemisms, okay? So historical facts, figures of speech, um, euphemisms, idiomatic expressions, also literary style. Okay, so any sort, of, uh, any sort of particular style that is particular to their writing, which we're going to get to um, some of that. Also, you have to ask yourself, how did they interpret their own literature? Now, these are rules that govern the interpretation of any piece of literature. We just happen to be talking about the Bible tonight, okay? Now, the Hebrew people interpret the Bible through four levels, Peshat, remez. Drosh ensued. Peshat, Rames Drosh, ensued. Interesting, the acronym on it is P-R-D-S, which is where they got their idea of paradise. Paradise. In other words, they said, if, you, if the Lord reveals to you all four levels of a scripture, you are entering into paradise, okay? So, Peshat is simple, plain meaning. The cleanest, plainest meaning of, uh, of the text. My, my theology professor in college told me this. If the plain sense of the Bible makes sense, then seek no other sense. Now, here's my hermeneutics professor. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That is a very Greco-Roman, Greek, Western way of looking at an Eastern book. They, they honored the plain meaning of the text, but they also understood that there was four other level, three other levels underlying it, and they would seek those senses. They would seek those senses. And we're going to in our time together. I, I'm only putting this up here. This whole session is an introduction to what we're doing, that we have to be humble, servant-minded, disposition of Messiah. For the rest of our time together, I'm going to say, well, there's a drosh on that, and there's a remez here, and I want you to know what I'm talking about. Remez is a hint... Or an allusion to something before. A hint or an allusion to something before it. Let me give you a great example of this. Great example. John 21. There's so many remezes in there, it's unbelievable. I'm going to pick one. John 21, you have seven disciples going fishing. Okay? Jesus has risen, but they're out fishing. Jesus decides to show up and cook breakfast for them on the beach. And it gives some details there that aren't necessary to the story. So you've got to ask yourself a question. What's the author trying to say? It says that he was standing over a pit of burning coals. He was standing over a pit of burning coals. One of the disciples, named Peter, jumps out of the boat, drags this net of 153 fish ashore, which is another Ramez, Drags a net of 153 fish, a story. It comes up to Jesus and it says that he sees there, stands there with Jesus over the burning coals. Why would the author include that? When was the last time Peter stood over burning coals? What was he doing? He was denying Jesus. The last time Peter stood over a thing of burning coals, he was denying Jesus. Now he's standing over a pit of burning coals, and Jesus doesn't even bring the sin up. He simply says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I do. He says, let's go then. Let's do ministry together. So Jesus restores Peter over the same picture of which Peter was denying him without bringing it up. See, these are hints allusions to something in the past. We'll get to that in a second. Drush is a life application. Life application. No matter what you ever find in the Bible, if you cannot apply it, don't talk about it. That was sort of, that, that was sort of their thing. You always look for life application, and you apply with questions. It is never your place to tell someone where they are in God. It is only your place to ask the right questions so that they sort of discover it. Okay? Jesus did this all the time. Sued is mystery. This is a realm of Bible interpretation that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to you. And they honored that. They honored that. See, whereas Western hermeneutics says... Oh, if you just let the Spirit reveal anything to you, it can get way out there and wacky. And are they right about that? Yes, they're scared that if you let that go, it's a slippery slope to nowhere. But the truth is, is that you can't throw all the baby out with the bathwater. You have to be mature enough to let people journey. So what they said was, was that Scripture was so huge that, and because God is so big, He limited Himself to the language of men. They said Scripture was like a diamond, And it had 70 facets to it, and it depends on how you turn it as to how the light goes through it. The scripture is like a diamond. It has 70 facets to it, and it depends on how you turn it as to how the light goes through it. So every scripture has 70 different ways for light to go through it with four different levels of meaning. So when any pastor or anybody says, hey, I was studying the scripture, and I nailed the real meaning," wait a minute, Joe and Jane. Hold on. We're dealing with something that is living and active and is sharper than any two-edged sword. Let me just prove it to you something very practical. Have you ever read a scripture and then three years later read it again and it meant something else to you? It's living. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. So in our journey, we have one more session tonight. We have two sessions tomorrow, Sunday morning and Sunday night. We're going to journey with the heart of a servant, with the heart of humility. We're going to journey into some great things in God's word that hopefully will help us establish the kingdom of God. And so the next session, we'll start, we'll start talking about the Hebraic definition of kingdom and how we can establish that in our lives, okay? Let's take a 15-minute break. We'll see you guys back at the resource table. You can come by and say hello. I think they've got some things for us. We'll see you back in 15 minutes.